Well, that message in Acts 2 is a tough preaching to preach after. How do you measure up against that? We're going to be in Psalm 16, so I would love for you to turn there in your Bibles with me. And today we're actually starting a new series. We're going to spend the next five weeks looking at five different psalms. And I'm super excited about it because Psalms is definitely one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, I read it and meditate on it almost every day. I'm pretty much always working it into my devotionals because it's precious to me. And the reason why I love this psalm so much is because I think this is a book that teaches us how to pray. It was the prayer book of Jesus because he would have inherited it from his Jewish tradition, and it was the prayer book of the Jews filled with songs of God's chosen people. As one author puts it, the Psalms is the heart of the Old Testament, and it exudes and teaches, I think, intimacy with God through worship, prayer, song, poetry. Not only that, but Psalms is deep and rich with theology, teaching us about who God is in his being and his nature. Basil, the great bishop of Caesarea in the 4th century, said about the Psalms that they present a compendium of all theology. Is that what you would think of when you consider the Psalms? Martin Luther would later write that the Psalms were a little Bible summarizing the Scriptures through prayer and song. And if that is true, then it should be no surprise that as Jesus went about his ministry in the Gospels, we see him quoting the Psalms. In particular, on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, he said to those men traveling with him that the Psalms pointed to him. They prophesied about him and anticipated him, which then helps us understand why he would quote them at so many pivotal moments in his ministry, in particular things like the cross as he hung and died. Tremper Longman the scholar points out that the book of Psalms does not only want to inform our intellect, but to stimulate our imagination, to arouse our emotions, and stir us on to holy thoughts and actions. So this is a beautiful book that helps us know our God and Creator better, and also helps us understand ourselves in relation to Him. Because not only does it teach us all about who God is, but it covers the whole breadth of human emotion and experience, doesn't it? From rejoicing to lamenting, from prophecy to philosophy, from wrestling with justice and injustice to sorrow and gladness. Really, if you spend time in the Psalms, what you come to see is every human feeling and every human experience can be better understand or understood through the lens of the Psalms, while always pointing the people of God in greater measure to His goodness, His love, and His power. This is a book that teaches us about repentance and faith and hope. And all of that ridiculously short summary that I just gave you is crammed into beautiful poetry that's both richly theological and also deeply devotional. And the format then and the content both call us to read slowly and reflect carefully and be moved spiritually to have greater love and devotion towards our God. 
So having said all of that, uh, spending five weeks in the Psalms is a little akin to watching the trailer of the trailer of a movie, right? It's like a 30-second snippet. But it'll have to do for now. Uh, I guess if you're a gentleman and you want to join our men's Bible study on Tuesday morning, we're going through the Psalms and we'll probably be there for a long time to come. But if you uh, have your Bible open to Psalm 16, I want to uh, want you to read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a welcome table back here that's got Bibles on them. I'm sure if you just raise your hand, Chris would bring one or put the Bible app on your phone. But let me read this. It says, a mictum of David. This is the song we just sung, by the way, in case uh, you didn't pick up on that. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As we come to this psalm, we find that it is technically called a psalm of confidence. The psalms fit into a number of different categories. And this one begins in verses 1 and 2 with language that is pretty similar to actually a psalm of lament, which would be a psalm of distress or disorientation. But this psalm quickly shifts from that kind of language so that it better fits in this category that we would call a psalm of confidence. And psalms of confidence are exactly what they sound like, right? The psalmist reflects on this peace that he has in God, the security that he finds, the confidence that he has in Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God of Israel. And I think there is much for us to be moved by as we pause for a moment and consider this genre of the psalm, a psalm of confidence. Because if I had to describe our current age, I would describe the age that we live in as an age of despair, not confidence. News media profit from feeding the masses on anguish and distress. This global access that we have to information has seemed to shrunk the world so that we're always poised on the verge of a war or terror, disease, and destruction. People pour their identity into this thing called social media, really just making a projection of themselves, appearing to live happy and satisfied lives. And we often found out later that all of it was only just a lie. 
politicians from both sides decry the miserable state of our country to gin up public support for their shallow solutions to our nation's problems. People despair over their finances, their health, their sense of security, loneliness, and a myriad other maladies that affect their daily lives. We're routinely told that the stock market is on the brink of collapse, the economy is coming to destruction, our democracy is fragile, the food you eat is giving you cancer, your earth is dying, trouble is everywhere, truth is unknowable. Despite the untold wealth that we have in our country, we feel a general sense of lack. And all of these things are producing a multi-billion dollar industry of alcohol, drugs, medication, as people try to escape the despair and the misery of life. And I could go on and on talking about the psychological effects of all of these assumed burdens, but I don't think I need to. My guess is your experience is probably, has probably led you to conclude that ours is an age of despair. You sometimes or maybe even often feel that feeling yourself. Hopelessness, meaninglessness, fear, emptiness, banality, weariness, that despair. And even as Christians with a great hope, like the hope we find here in Psalm 16, the brokenness of our world, I think, sometimes so infects the church that the gospel appears to be only a great escape plan from the problems of this life. An emergency exit through which one day at the end of our lives we will exit, but between now and then we are destined to suffer all the days of our sorrowful lives under the despair that marks our age. But I think Psalm 16 gives us a picture of so much more for the Christian, doesn't it? A potential life of peace and hope and fullness. A life vibrant with the infusion of a God whose way is deeply satisfying. And a life of providential goodness under his care. A slow and thoughtful read through Psalm 16 breathes a cheerful confidence into the heart of those who have eyes to see the sovereign grace of our God who redeems people. Now David is the author of this particular psalm, as the text tells us, and the task that I think he sets himself to as he writes in rejoicing is the creation of a picture of a godly life. The joy and satisfaction, the hope that comes from a life that is dedicated to God alone. And I think he accomplishes this task in two ways, as we're going to see laid out for us in the first verse. I think we could consider this verse sort of a thesis statement or a thematic statement of what the rest of the psalm is going to contain. He begins first with a prayer of request. Preserve me, O God. And he follows that up with a positional statement. For in you I take refuge. And I think it's fair to say that as we reflect on the rest of the psalm, we're going to see these two primary ideas fleshed out. The preservation of God 
and the dependence David has on him. We're going to see what happens when God preserves the life of those who cry out to him. And we're going to see what taking refuge in God looks like. We're going to see how God answers the prayer of those who look to him for preservation or salvation. And we're going to see what walking that path through personally positioning yourself under God as refuge does. We're going to see God's saving work, his shield over those who trust him. And we're going to see our focused effort to abide in him. Let me say it one more time because I want it to be clear in one more way. We're going to see God's part in preserving and David's part in obeying. And together, these two aspects, I think, are going to paint a wonderful picture of the hope that we have, a life filled with joy for those who walk the path of righteousness. Okay, now, although the psalm begins by crying out to God with the phrase, preserve me, O God, it's actually the second phrase that David takes up first in the psalm. For in you I take refuge. That's going to define verses 2 through 8. You can kind of follow along with me. David's first theme of reflection in the psalm is on his own decision to follow God, his own decision to seek the Lord. We see in verse 2, he declares he's chosen to make God his greatest good. In fact, he goes so far as to say he has no good apart from God, nothing. Verse 3, he tells us his delight is in the people of God. David has chosen to surround himself wisely with others who share this commitment that he has to the things of God. Verse 4, he explains he refuses to chase after other gods or engage in worship directed at idols or the things of this world. In verses 5 and 6, David explains that he finds his satisfaction in God, setting the desires of his heart on God alone. God is his chosen portion. Verse 7 tells us that David turns his heart to the Lord to offer blessing to God, choosing the instruction of God and the wisdom of God to guide and direct his life. And I think all of these decisions by David to order his life around the things of God, to seek the Lord, culminate in the beginning of verse 8, where David declares, he has chosen to seek the Lord always, keeping God always before him as he walks through this life. That was a brief summary, but friends, what we have here displayed before us is a wise man who by his example calls us to a similar single-minded devotion to God. David truly does take refuge in the Lord, and he invites us then to follow his example. In the chaotic storm of this life, David chooses to find rest and refuge under the shadow of the Almighty. And whatever other shiny things may flit and flitter across his vision or gleam in the periphery of his view, David's heart looks only to one direction, and that is to Yahweh, God. And the result of this commitment, I think, is God's gracious outpouring of a preserved life, which is what we find in the second half of the psalm. David sees the answer to his prayer, the reward for his commitment. It's described for us in verses 8 through 11. 
In verse 8, David can say confidently, he will not be shaken because his life is built on the rock of the Almighty. His heart is glad. His whole being finds joy. And even his perishing temporal flesh finds security, is what verse 9 says. In verse 10, he exclaims his confidence that God will never abandon his soul to death. And the rotting, stinking corruption that comes from sin will never consume him. This reflection on God's answer to his prayer to preserve his life, it reaches its crescendo in verse 11 where David writes that God has given him life, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore in close relationship with God. That's a lot to observe and a lot to proclaim. But I want you to understand that even that is not all that David saw. He saw even greater things, if you can believe that, or maybe you are already anticipating it as you paid attention to the reading of Acts chapter 2. We're going to come back to that. But before we get to that, let's pause and consider for just a moment what we have already discussed. In the overwhelming whirlwind of this life, doesn't this picture that David has painted for us sound refreshing to you? Doesn't it sound delightful? Don't you long for life? Not just existence, but life. For fullness of joy, for pleasures forevermore poured out upon you in the person of God himself. Sometimes when I fall to temptation and I sin, I find this thought race through my head. In despair and disappointment and anguish that I've once again betrayed my God, I find this thought, I wish I could just die. I wish I could just die. And it's morbid, it's demonic to want to escape oppression from sin and corruption of sin through greater corruption that comes through death. Do you see the great irony there? Because the fact of the matter is, I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to truly live. Sin is death. True life is freedom where there is no sin. And G.K. Chesterton pointed out that existence is always better than non-existence. Life trumps death. Death is not a positive outcome. Life is what is to be desired. And I don't want death to escape from this world. I want life, true life, real life, life the way God intended it to be, abundant life, life to the full is the phrase Jesus used. I want to live so abundantly that death has no claim on me. That sin has no power over me. That despair is a stranger and corruption a foreign idea. Does that resonate with your heart? The deep desire for life over death, abundant life, eternal life. Can you relate to that desire? Or do you long for death to escape the despair and the misery of the broken human experience? 
Personally, I would rather walk in the path of life to enter into the pleasures of God in everlasting joy. And here, David gives us a real game plan, I think, for living that kind of life. And the plan he presents is quite simple, maybe over simple. Seek God. Call upon His mercy to preserve you. Be satisfied with His goodness. These are things that bring a remedy to hopelessness. It's actually not that complicated. Confidence that our God who saves has made a way for us to be free of the corruption of sin and death and evil. And I pray for you that your heart does long for that. And even more, that your heart finds what you long for in Jesus Christ. But David saw something more, something greater than even what he writes clearly here. Because the truth is, what happened to David? He died. David died. And his body was buried. And this is the idea that Peter takes up in Acts chapter 2 as he's preaching. You heard it read a few minutes ago. In Acts 2, Peter claims that David knew that he would die even as he wrote this psalm. And so what is he talking about? Well, David was looking forward to a Savior so great, so good, so holy, so righteous, that it was impossible for death to make a claim on him. Do you understand that when you, you sin, you give yourself over to death? It owns you. It has a claim on you. But Christ, in His righteousness and holiness, His perfection, was a Savior greater than death. Peter says in Acts 2 that David wasn't ultimately writing about his own life in this psalm. David, through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, was looking to Jesus, looking forward to a Savior who by his righteousness and by his power would have victory over death. The God-man Jesus Christ, whose life was so singularly focused, so singularly devoted to the one true God, so perfectly preserved by our Heavenly Father, that his life would actually kill death. The curse of sin and evil was so impotent and so powerless in the face of Jesus that when death tried to drag his soul to the grave, its power was shattered and ruined by the eternal, everlasting life of God. I think the song that we sung put it something like, the gates of death were torn asunder. Think about this. Death tried to swallow Jesus up, but he was so good and so powerful that death choked to death even as it tried to swallow Christ whole. And Peter says to those listening to him as he preaches in Acts 2, you should have known the grave could not hold him. He was too great. Because the God-man Jesus walked this path of life in righteousness so devoted to God that the corruption of sin had no claim upon him. 
the corruption that man, you and I, brought into this world through sin and rebellion against God, it wasn't merely halted by Jesus at his death. David foresaw that it would actually be reversed. Do you get this? Do you see this? So that the death of Jesus would open the floodgates of life to those who would call out to him for preservation, those who would choose to trust him on the path of righteousness. So that where before the natural way of things was that life would always be swallowed up by death, now death through Christ has been swallowed up in his everlasting life. And this is what David foresaw by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this psalm and anticipated Jesus. But one of the beautiful things about the psalms is that they have a threefold depth to them. I said at the beginning they were the poems and songs of the people of Israel, the Jews. That's one layer of the depth. But as we just discovered through Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Psalms actually find their fulfillment in Jesus himself, a second layer to their depth. But from a third vantage point, we come to understand that since we are in Christ through faith, the Psalms are further extended beyond the Jews and beyond Jesus to us, the people of God the church, the bride of Christ. So as we read the Psalms, we are not reading the dead poems of people thousands of years ago. We are reading the story of redemption fleshed out in the people of God who live even now. You and I. And see, the fact of the matter is you you have to understand this. On our own, on your own, you could never live the kind of life that Psalm 16 talks about. It is not possible. Actually, you would never even want to. Because in our natural state, the way that we are at birth, we are already so corrupt that there is no life in us. No remnant of a pulse. Not a hint of breath in our lungs not a spark of life in our spirit. We are dead in sin. Humanity by nature is separated from God, corrupt, spiritually deceased, which is why despair and hopelessness run rampant in the world. I don't know why anybody is surprised by that. In ourselves, we have no power to walk the path of life. We don't even have the spark of a desire for God. And so then what David dreams of in this psalm for himself and for humanity is little more than a fairy tale when we talk of man in his natural state. Until, until, don't you see, Christ comes And he lives it out. He makes it true. He fulfills the prophecy. He accomplishes for us everything which the psalm dreams of. And by so doing, then Christ opens up the possibility to us of this kind of life. So that it is no longer a fairy tale or a fantasy. By putting his perfect life in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ makes possible for us what David could only fantasize 
about. Through Christ, the life David speaks of is actually available to us. And I want you to understand that this goes way beyond merely the everlasting life that you have after you die. I wish that Christians would stop considering Christianity from that meager perspective. Yes, it is true. Jesus opened up that possibility too. So that when you die, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you will be raised from the dead to live forever. Just as death had no claim upon Jesus, if you are in Jesus Christ, death has no claim on you. But that, that is not all. That is not the fullness of what eternal life means for the Christian now. Jesus also made the same quality of eternal life which he lived available to us here and now. Does that make sense? Do you, do you understand that? Maybe another way I could say it is Jesus didn't just make a stairway for, to heaven for us to climb to escape this world. But instead, he tore asunder the veil that separated the kingdom of God from the kingdom of this world so that the kingdom of God has come upon this world in power. Yes, you will still die. And yes, in this life, you will fall to sin and temptation and corruption. And yes, in this life, you will sometimes stray from the path of life. You will sometimes reach for joy and find it inaccessible. You will sometimes fail to comprehend the pleasure that is to be found in the presence of God. Sometimes Christians do despair. That's a truth taught in other psalms. And so I don't want to downplay that, but more fundamentally, I want you to understand that the everlasting life which Christ lives That is your life here and now. As you cry out to God, preserve me, O God, his answer is not, you must wait until you die for that reality to be realized. His answer instead is that you are now free to take refuge in him, to follow Jesus, to choose righteousness, to live an abundant quality of life if I might play off of another, to truly have your best life now in Christ. God answers that prayer by preserving you from the corruption of sin on a daily basis. And so these things which David declared and Jesus fulfilled by the grace of God, they are ours for the taking. You can step into that kind of quality of life to be unshaken, liberated from despair and hopelessness. You can experience a glad heart free from the sorrow and weight that comes with guilt. You can dwell secure, whatever might ail your flesh on any given day. You can escape corruption because holiness has been gifted to you by Jesus. You can walk the path of life instead of looking for an escape from death. You can experience fullness of joy even when sadness may be a temporary companion. You can have pleasures forevermore because you understand 
that pleasure is found in Christ alone. I just want you to understand, we are not as Christians waiting for these things to be fulfilled in eternity after we die. We can actually begin to experience them, to tap into them now as we live because of what Christ has done for us. Yes, they will come in a greater degree in the life to come. But that's been poured out upon us through the Holy Spirit already. And in this we have a great confidence. So then we come full circle. Remember at the beginning I said, this psalm gives us a picture of how God answers David's cry, preserve me, O Lord. But remember, I also said it gives us a picture of David's part. And now your part comes front and center. Will you choose to cling to this confidence you have in Christ? God has done his part through Jesus Christ. Now the ball is in your court. It is yours for the taking. You must decide what you will do. Will you follow David's example and walk this path of righteousness? Will you take up the cross of Christ and follow down the trail that he has blazed for you? Will you choose to live a godly life and deny sin and its corrupting powers? Will you place your good in God alone? Will you find delight in the people of God? Will you forsake idols and impotent false gods, the things of this world? Will you rest like Brad was saying, not just one day a week, but in God's goodness, finding hope and confidence in Him? Will you set your mind and your heart to the task of walking the path of life which God has made known to you through Christ? Psalm 16 offers us a picture of eternal life. It is a gift which Jesus has graciously given us. And it was something David longed to see, and it's yours if you want it. All that's left for you to do is step into it, receive it, set your mind to the task ahead of you, take refuge in God, let Him preserve you, to set the Lord always before you and to walk towards Him with heartfelt commitment. He has done everything else. What is left for you to do is follow. We're going to take communion now. We're actually going to take communion every week this, through this series of psalms. And the reason we take communion is because it's an important part of following Jesus. Jesus commanded us to remember him in this way. Specifically, we remember his death, the sacrifice of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And I know I've gone a little long, but give me another minute, because before we take communion, I want to mention another part of following Jesus that I don't talk about enough here at Maricopa Springs. It's been a while. The Christian church, the Protestant Christian church, believes that there are two ordinances for the church. There are two sacraments for the church. The first is communion, where we remember Christ's death, and the second is baptism, where we identify with his death and resurrection. Baptism is a wonderful, joyful experience for Christians. 
where we publicly proclaim our desire to follow after him, much like I was just saying, our decision to follow Jesus on the path of life, and then we identify with him in his death and resurrection. Some people think that baptism is merely this idea of like being washed of your sins. I think that is a part of it. But actually, it's the action of going down into the water like death and being raised up out of the water like resurrection that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 6. And in that process, we are indeed reminded we are washed and cleansed of all our, of our sins. And so I want to call all of you this morning who are Christians who've placed your faith in Jesus to take communion with us, to repent of your sins again and receive his grace and forgiveness afresh. But I want to call those of you who are Christians who've placed your faith in Jesus but who've never been baptized to follow Jesus in that command as well. Maybe there's some of you in this room who've recently decided to trust Jesus and you don't even know anything about baptism. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you've just never thought it was the proper time. I want to encourage you to obey him in this command, like you would obey him in the command to follow him or to take communion. And if that's something you're interested in doing, there's just an informational kind of sign-up sheet. If you put your name on the sheet, we're not going to like, you know, kick down the door and hose you down. We're just going to follow up with you. Our elder team will get in touch with you. And uh, we would love to talk about what that looks like and hear about your story of coming to faith in Jesus. And so as you go and take communion, if you're interested in baptism, then I encourage you to go to that sheet and just write your name down as well. As for communion, uh, I want to invite our worship team to come forward. As they lead us in this next song, you're invited to make your way to one of the two tables in the back of the room, and you're going to find a cracker that represents the body of Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, whose body was given for your eternal nourishment. And you're going to find juice representing the blood of Jesus spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. And don't rush to the table if you need to spend some time just in prayer before God. Do that at your seat. And then when the Lord has encouraged you with the grace and forgiveness that you have in Jesus. Make your way to that table, dip that cracker, eat it there on the spot, and rejoice as you receive afresh the forgiveness of your sins, which secured for you, which was secured for you through the death, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son that you gave up willingly, freely, uncompelled by any name or power or authority because none is greater than yours. And you did it out of love for us that we might be redeemed. We are in awe of your glory in the way that you forgive sinners. And Lord, as we take communion, I pray that you would renew in our hearts our commitment to walk your path of life, to seek fullness of joy at your right hand, to find pleasures forevermore in Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.